The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. I'm really excited to welcome Margot Oge, who was the former director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality at the US EPA for nearly 20 years. Basically, it was her job to regulate the transportation industry. And she has just come out with a brand new book that's called Driving the Future, Combating Climate Change with Cleaner, Smarter Cars. And I'm so thrilled to have her on to talk about the new book and to talk about the future of transportation, not just in the U.S., but around the world and what impact that could have on our communities. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Margot. I'm so glad to have you. Nice being with you, Jill. Thank you. Well, I loved your book, Driving the Future, Combating Climate Change with Cleaner, Smarter Cars. The first few chapters gave such an an interesting and enthralling history of the evolution of climate science. You know, and in the U.S., lately we've been accustomed to hearing climate change discussed as a really polarizing political issue. But what I really appreciated in your book was the way that you outlined the involvement of scientists from around the world. And even for me as a former naval officer, I really enjoyed the part where you talked about the pivotal influence that a former U.S. Navy commander had and military funding had on climate science. And I realize that the question I'm about to ask you is kind of like trying to squeeze a watermelon into a Coke bottle, but can you give our listeners a brief overview of the history of climate science? Be glad to do that, Jill. As you said, the issue of uh, climate change uh, has been so polarized for the past at least three, four decades so I thought, you know, drafting this book, it will be important to just lay out the history of the science. Uh, and actually, you know, you can go back, and, you know, I come from Greece, so I'm always interested to understand the connection of various issues with my Greek ancestors. But sure. back, you know, thousands of years ago, the Greeks um, were kind of arguing to what extent uh, cutting down forests might uh, change the rainfall. Obviously, they could not uh, talk about climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, but they were really into something by basically trying to connect how human activities could affect weather patterns. But really, we did not start having a very good sense of how human activities, which is basically burning fossil fuels, coal and oil, affect the climate until... uh, Early in 1903, when a Swedish physicist, uh, Arrhenius, who really was a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, was able to connect um, with you know, the scientific work that he had done, the effects of uh, the heat uh, retaining greenhouse gases, and what does that do to the, to, to the environment. And his conclusion was a couple of things that he concluded. One is that the that the atmosphere in our Earth uh, 
could not be the way that we know it without the greenhouse gases. So greenhouse gases bring balance in the surface uh, of the Earth's temperature. Without it, without greenhouse gases, we would end up being something like 38 degrees uh, lower in our, t- in our temperature. It would be ice, and, and we would not be able to survive, obviously. Mm-hmm. So we need greenhouse gases. But the, 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 what he also uh, was uh, connecting is he, we had started, just in Europe, we had started burning uh, fossil fuels, burning wood and coal at the time, and he was uh, very happy to recognize that by building in the atmosphere, you know, greenhouse gases, it could warm the temperature. And his idea, he was calling it the, the hothouse theory. He was, he was basically saying, gee, wouldn't it be wonderful with a warmer climate you would have, you know, more uh, ability to, to, to work in the agriculture field, cold climate will warm up a little bit better. And he looked at it all very, in a very positive way. So he recognized that by burning fossil fuels, we will, you know, create um, uh, higher temperatures in the atmosphere, but he looked at it as a positive thing. Uh, the other thing that he also was considering is that we, the, there is no way that humans could burn so much fossil fuel and putting so much carbon in the atmosphere that the vast oceans could not take care of it because oceans are known as a big sink when it comes to carbon. Basically, they absorb the carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. So for him, it was all very positive. But it wasn't until 1946 when the U.S. Navy, uh, doing some, um, some research, nuclear testing uh, in the Marshall Islands, and, and a very important geologist, his name is Roger Revel, who was uh, not just a geologist but also an oceanographer, he was able to, to determine, that one, that we're putting too much um, uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and two, which is very important, that the world oceans would not be able to absorb this um, huge and unprecedented amount of, of greenhouse gases that we're putting in the atmosphere. So the previous theories that uh, Dr. Arrhenius had that the oceans can take care of it, um, Ravel basically was able to conclude that that was not the case. Mm-hmm. And Ravel put a very important um, document. It's a, it's a bureaucratic title document, the first general report on climatology uh, to the chief of the Weather Bureau. And this was his effort to basically warn the government that what we were doing was unprecedented as far as uh, the consumption of, of fossil fuels, and he called it a grandiose scientific experiment. Um, he also was the first to testify in, in Congress uh, raising uh, the issue of um, the ex- explosion of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere as a result of what uh, humans were doing, which was an industrial revolution, burning fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, he was the one that influenced, he, uh, you know, uh, uh, Vice President Gore. At, at that time, he was, um, he was not even a senator at one speech that he gave at Harvard. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the history and mm-hmm. it wasn't, um, and then taking it from Ravel um, and his extraordinary scientific work, uh, both showing the buildup, the fast buildup of greenhouse gas emissions, but also the inability of the 
uh, oceans to absorb uh, this massive amount of carbon, uh, we come in the in, in, in 1980s, um, where um, um, 1988, when a, um, another very important person in this debate, Jim Henson, who was working for NASA at the time, he was a scientist with NASA, mm-hmm. uh, he was um, able to testify in Congress in June 1988 uh, that um, human activities um, in burning fossil fuel is already creating change in the climate, and we don't have to wait for you know decades right. uh, to see uh, the impact that climate change has had um, in, in, in the planet. Um, in 1988, we had uh, in, in in Europe we had thousands of people dying um, uh, because of, of 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 high heat, but also we had fires going on in the U.S. that were mm-hmm. responsible for billions of dollars of agricultural loss. Uh, so that was the cry of Hansen, and I think the beginning uh, with Jim Hansen of the scientific community to be to, to come together and trying to to put the science together. What, mm-hmm. How much do we know? What do we know about human activities, uh, burning fossil fuel, uh, the impact it has in our planet, and what needs to be done about it? And it, the first um, scientific gathering happened a few months after Jim Henson's uh, testimony in the U.S. Congress, uh, having the United Nations creating um, a panel. It's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Maybe your listeners uh, probably are more familiar with the term IPCC. Yep. And it, it's a loose uh, um, confederation of uh, 2,000 scientists uh, from all over the planet. So no, this is not just the U.S. or China or India or Europe. The scientists come from around the world, and they have had um, five reports to date. Uh, and every time that they put a report out, job. Uh, not only they stress the, the certainty by which the scientific community uh, is looking at the unprecedented amount of data, scientific data that we have, but also they, uh, every, every, every new report that's coming out, uh, they are saying we don't need to wait for more decades to understand the impact that, that we humans have in the planet and the urgency by which we need to to act. So there are over close to 2,000 um, scientific papers, all peer-reviewed, and there is 97% consensus among the scientific community that one, uh, human activities burning fossil fuel, but also deforestation are responsible of, of building greenhouse gas emissions into the environment, mm-hmm. that the result to impact our climate, and the second is that we need to take urgent action to address uh, this this climate change uh, Mm -hmm. before we have a huge impact. Well, you know, early in the book, you mentioned that several opportunities have been missed to explain to the American public the relationship between carbon dioxide and the Earth's temperature. And in the three minutes or so that we have until we take our first commercial break, I'd love to give you that opportunity right now. You know, if somebody were going to take a little clip of this part of the show that would explain to the American public and to students across America 
you know, what is that relationship between carbon dioxide and, Earth and the Earth's temperature? Give us, give us your three-minute version of that, if you can. I know that's tough. <laughs> Three minutes. Okay. So, so we, we, we have heard that the, that the planet has gone from the ice ages to warm temperatures, and that's actually the case. But we have data that was done um, uh, in Europe by a group of European scientists where they look at uh, data from 800,000 years ago. This is a drilling in the Antarctic. And what they found out is that we have had, uh, every 100,000 years, uh, the, the temperature uh, rises from anywhere, rises and falls, 100,000 years. So it, it falls anywhere from 18, and I'm going to talk in Fahrenheit, 18 degrees to 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. So what happens when the temperature drops, we can, this, the scientists were able to measure the carbon uh, uh, concentration in the atmosphere. And the carbon concentration was 180 to 185 parts per, per million during ice ages. And when the temperature warmed up, the carbon concentration was maximum 300 parts per million. But it took 100,000 years for this kind of, of, of changes. What has happened, at least for the seven, last 70 years, we have seen the concentration of greenhouse gas emissions going over 400 parts per million. Wow. So for 800,000 years, we have never seen the concentration of greenhouse gas emissions going higher than 300 parts per million. We have given the Earth 100,000 years to adapt. Mm -hmm. uh, now, in 70 years, there is no way that we can adapt because we're building up the greenhouse gas emissions at such a fast rate uh, that there is no way that we're going to be able to adapt the way that has happened in the past. Right. Well, and at the same time that we've been introducing all of these hydrocarbons into the air through burning fossil fuels that were buried under the ground for millions of years, we've simultaneously taken away some of the Earth's ability to absorb that carbon with exactly. you know, deforestation and paving over wetlands. And so, I mean, even, you know, a sixth grader in science class knows that that you know, that's going to put the carbon cycle out of, out of sync. Think, from, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, and so exactly. it's not that hard it, to understand. Uh, but I think you're you right. An, just to give you an example, um, nearly half of the carbon um, uh, absorption process happens in the South Ocean around mm -hmm. Antarctica. This is just a very small, if you think about it, you know, uh, very small of all the world's salt water. But as the temperature of the ocean increases, the ability of the ocean to absorb more carbon decreases. Mm -hmm. It's pretty simple. As you said, a, a high school uh, kid can understand that. Right. That we're building the carbon so fast, we're warming the oceans, and we're cutting down the forest. And all this, you know, continues to build up carbon pollution. And what your listeners need to understand is that it, takes, it will take hundreds and hundreds of years uh, for every ton of carbon pollution that we put in the atmosphere to be absorbed mm -hmm. <laughs> or to dissipate in the atmosphere. And by doing these experiments with the ice cores, they know 
scientists know that every time we've seen a buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the Earth's temperature has risen. So, um, you know, there's a lot of empirical data to show that this is what we should expect. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but we have so much more to talk about with Margot. So folks, don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. We're talking to Margot Oge. Um, she has a brand new book out called Driving the Future, Combating Climate Change with Cleaner, Smarter Cars. She's just recently retired as the former director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality for the U.S. EPA. And during the last segment, we were talking about climate change. We were talking about climate science. And, you know, the reason that, you know, that's so important, it kind of sets the foundation for what impact the transportation industry has on greenhouse gas emissions and the contribution to climate change that the transportation industry has. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But I want to talk about the EPA in general. Um, Recently, I was flipping through cable news channels and I saw a ticker about the EPA come up on Fox News. So I stopped to give a listen. And the young lady who was reporting the story spoke with this look of shock and disgust on her face as she told viewers that the EPA had added over 11,000 jobs to its payroll since 1970. (laughs) And I knew that that's when the EPA started. So it's kind of like, well, no, duh. They had zero jobs in 1970. (laughs) So it's good they they added a few over the years. 
I think she was trying to convince viewers that this was an example of, you know, government growth gone wild. But of course, you know, you and I both know that since the EPA was established in 1970, any addition of jobs makes perfect sense. And in the intro of your book, you give a great summarization of some of the EPA's many successes. And so for the benefit of our listeners, I'd love for you to share some of those so we can all be glad that the EPA has added jobs since 1970. Well, you know, Jill, um, it's it's very interesting, uh, well, you know, for me, I have been with the EPA for 32 years, and, uh, it, you know, if I was to come back to life, I would come back and do exactly what I was doing, because mm-hmm. uh, the agency uh, has been able to, to save lives, um, reduce respiratory illnesses ac- across uh, the country, and also set um, uh, programs and policies that became model for other countries to follow. So, um, but, but, you know, before EPA proposes any major regulation, um, you know, to clean the water or to improve the air, uh, the air that we breathe or to address pesticides, time after time what you hear from the industry is that EPA's actions will uh, destroy the industry, will increase costs to the consumer, outsource jobs, um, and on and on and on. And none of this... Um, uh, threatening, um, uh, you know, uh, scare tactics that the industry has undertaken for 40 years have pan out. And if nothing else, the country has been able to enjoy clean air, clean water, and economic growth. And uh, what I want to tell people is that if any, any of you have um, recently visited um, China and, and saw what is going on in some of the major megacities in China with air pollution and water pollution, uh, you'd go back to the history and see what was going on in the U.S. in the 50s and 60s with major cities like New York City uh, and Los Angeles where kids were not allowed to go outside to, to, to play or go to school because they had significant air pollution problems. Mm-hmm. So what we have been able to achieve in the last 40 years is reduce pollution by over 75%, when at the same time, we as a country have grown the economy by three times, population has grown, we have more than double the, not, not the vehicles, but also the miles that we're driving, you know, across the country. And at the same time, we have been able to enjoy cleaner air and cleaner water. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I have a number of examples in my, in my book why the rhetoric of the regulated industry, the oil industry, the coal industry, uh, the automobile industry, uh, is not to be taken serious because history teaches us that this rhetoric, the scare tactics, have not worked. And I wanted to just take one second to tell your listeners um, what happened in, 19, in, in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. They, as you said under President um, Nixon, the first Environmental Protection Agency was established to address significant environmental issues that the country was, was dealing with at the time. Uh, and, um, and one of the major first activities was to reduce emissions from cars, from new cars. And uh, there, was a, there was a public hearing in Washington, D.C., where um, the, the first administrator of EPA, Raquel House, had invited car companies to come and testify. And car companies came in, and, and there's a good story that I tell in the book about the vice president of General Motors 
that basically uh, testified and, and told um, um, Mr. Ackelhaus that if EPA proceeds to undertake these actions to reduce emissions from cars, uh, you will see it, you will have a complete stoppage of General Motors uh, <laughs> facilities. We're not going to be able to produce cars anymore. We're going to shut down the the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Mr. Ackelhaus held very firm on on <laughs> on the fact that Congress had given him the authority to put this program in place, and the program mm-hmm. went, it, went into effect. Well, two years later, General Motors is taking an, an ad on uh, newspapers across the country saying, General Motors has figured out a way how to address this you know, air pollution issue from cars. We have a catalytic converter that not only cleans the emissions from cars, it also makes cars better and more fuel efficient. And the U.S. became um, um, a leader in clean uh, air technology, clean car technology that led other countries. And today you cannot find any car in any part of the world that doesn't have a catalytic converter as a result of the work and the innovation that took place in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and this is just a small example of what EPA, EPA has done. But uh, the fact that we are breathing uh, cleaner air today, our chemicals are, are, are not, uh, we don't breathe toxic toxic chemicals, uh, pesticides are cleaner, our water is cleaner. It's all because Congress um, has given us the laws and EPA has implemented these laws across the country. And another thing that I want to say about the Environmental Protection Agency, it's not just implementing laws. It's also very important to enforce the regulations. So when we write regulations, for example, that all car companies must reduce, let's say, nitrogen oxides by 99%, we're going to make sure that those laws are being followed. Yeah, there Uh, have to be consequences. Absolutely. And if they're not followed, there are consequences. And then there are penalties. That's something that is probably... Uh, one of the biggest success stories in the U.S. when it comes to environmental regulations, not only that we have very, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, technology-forcing regulations, but also we enforce them. So if you go to China, since I was talking about China, mm-hmm. they are leapfrogging as far as adapting regulations uh, faster than we did in the last 40 years. But the problem, one of the major issues that, that we're dealing with in China is that these regulations are not enforced. Right. So you don't have level playing fields. Companies, some of our, even our U.S. companies are wondering, should we invest in more cleaner technology when our counterpart, our Chinese counterpart, doesn't do that? Right. So as a result, you have regulations that are not delivering the public health benefits. And for all that, it takes effort. It takes resources, you know, to do that. In the U.S., we have 250 million cars and trucks and other equipment. We have to enforce that this equipment meet regulatory requirements. Well, how do you do that if you don't have resources? And right. you cannot enforce it on all 250 million ve- okay, equipment, but you have to figure out how many of these vehicles you can test and, and, and you can make sure that indeed the companies are following their law. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I was surprised to learn and happy to learn about the EPA's 
capabilities. It, you know, you guys are not just coming up with these transportation regulations in a vacuum. You actually have a really sophisticated lab in Ann Arbor, um, and I had no idea that the EPA had such a well-equipped facility. Can you talk about that lab and what it does um, and how it enables you to create fair and, and realistic regulations? Yeah. You know, the EPA lab uh, that deals with transportation issues is very unique. And actually, it gives the agency the capability to both write smart uh, regulations uh, and at the same time be able to defend those regulations and implement them. And what I mean by that is um, there is very high likelihood when you regulate a major industry that they will challenge you at court. Mm. Uh, And the ability that we have in the the area of transportation to defend those rules based on the work that we have done in our own laboratory in Ann Arbor, Michigan, really gives us uh, a a lot of latitude to design and defend smart environmental policies. So the lab in Ann Arbor, Michigan, does three things very briefly. One, it helps um, the agency to actually draft uh, environmental policies at the national level. Anywhere, anything that moves and pollutes from aircraft to planes, locomotives, um, agricultural equipment, cars, and the fuel that they use, gasoline, diesel, or renewable fuels. So we set those regulatory um, requirements with the help of the, the scientists in, in the laboratory. The second thing that it does is to enforce those regulations that go into place, you know, for, let's say, for lawnmowers or for trucks or for every equipment and vehicle that moves and pollutes and the mm-hmm. fuel. Um, and the way that they, so a car, a car company, for example, let's say General Motors, before they introduce a car in the marketplace every year, they have to send EPA some data to basically, you know, demonstrate that their car meets the environmental regulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, one approach would have been to just accept that, and we just don't verify to what extent General Motors is, is, is following the regulations or any mm-hmm. other company. But our laws, our Clean Air Act laws, give us the ability to um, verify. Well, and that's even a a mantra of, you know, one of the Republican Party's favorite presidents, Ronald Reagan. He was the one who said, and he was talking about the Soviet Union at the time, trust but verify. So that's, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Exactly. And and you know what is amazing? When Congress, um, when something goes wrong with a federal agency, and I'll I'll just talk briefly, what happened with... um, uh, the unfortunate situation with the General motor, Motors cars that, that, you know, that, that we had, you know, four or five deaths and GM had to pay mm-hmm. these big penalties. Uh, one issue, though, that, that, was not, that, that was not investigated very carefully is that time after time when presidents have asked, uh, for, you know, to support the Department of Transportation, give, give them more authority mm-hmm. and give them more resources to evaluate this type of accidents, Congress has failed to do that. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. But when the agencies like, like environmental protection agency goes out and enforces these regulations and asks for additional resources, we're not allowed to have additional resources. To give mm-hmm. you an example, for cars, we only monitor uh, 10% of all cars introduced wow. in the marketplace. Much fewer trucks and locomotives and industrial equipment and agricultural because mm-hmm. the resources are not there. But, but the fact that we are able to, uh, to audit 10%, it gives a very strong message to the industry to follow these laws. Right. Absolutely. You know, in speaking of the laws, I want to get to um, the national program for model year 2017 through 2025 for the uh, CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards and greenhouse gas standards. Um, In the book, you mentioned that in 2014, when The Economist uh, publication, if our listeners are familiar with the magazine called The Economist, they examined 20 global greenhouse gas reduction actions to combat global warming. And they rated the United States vehicle rules as the most significant action in the transportation sector to date. And I know you were a big part of that. So I want you to talk to our listeners about those vehicle rules and why they're expected to make such a significant impact on global warming. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Jill. So uh, very briefly, just a little bit of background. The transportation sector is responsible for one-third of greenhouse gas emissions mm. in the U.S. Uh, cars are about 60% and trucks another 20%. So cars and trucks are about 80%. Uh, so after the energy-generating uh, sector, which is 40%, the transportation sector is the second uh, biggest sector, and actually the fastest growing sector, not just in the U.S., but uh, also overseas, especially the freight sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2025, uh, the regulations that we have put in place will reduce the carbon footprint of new cars by 50%. Wow. Uh, that is equivalent during the full life of those vehicles of taking 80 million cars off the road and the carbon mm-hmm. pollution of those cars. Wow. We will save 2.2 million barrels a day of fuel, which is equivalent as half of what we import as a country from OPEC countries. Wonderful. One half. Mm-hmm. We're going to be saving $1.7 trillion in fuel savings. This is money that we will keep in the U.S. We're not going to save it in oil, but we will have it and spend it for other uh, products. And also, most important, or as important, the consumer will be able to save money at the pump, uh, regardless how low the gasoline prices will go. And by the way, I don't expect the prices of gasoline uh, to stay as low as they are today. Anybody that has followed gasoline prices, mm-hmm. uh, it's a very volatile product, and the majority of the oil experts believe that by the end of 2015, we're going to see these prices already going up, and we're already seeing them going up. But by 2025, the consumer uh, that will buy a new car will be saving about $8,000 at a pump. Wow. On, on oil savings. That's so, huge. <laughs> that, is, that is pretty huge. When it comes to climate, it's pretty huge. 
when it comes to um, uh, oil, and it's, it, it's pretty huge when it comes to um, the whole issue of economic benefits. And one more thing that I want to say that people don't realize is that today uh, the automotive industry is enjoying uh, huge growth. Uh, last year, there were 16.5 million cars that we sold in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the number one issue that the consumer is looking for right now, the one, number one criteria when they purchase a new car is fuel economy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Although gasoline prices are lower. So our car companies have been able to innovate, you know, introduce more fuel-efficient cars. So if you bought a, a car today... It, it, it clearly it's going to be more fuel efficient, cleaner, and you'll save more money at the pump than five years ago, because mm-hmm. our rules went into effect in 2012. So it's from 2012 to 2025, and furthermore, all this explo- explosion of innovation that you're seeing in the marketplace, mm-hmm. with more electric cars, plug-ins, hybrids, fuel cells, lightweight materials. Uh, today there are 76 alternative powertrain models. Uh, back 10 years ago, there were only two, two hybrids. Yep. Isn't that amazing? Uh, all this is happening because of this regulation. So again, you know, when you hear to, um, uh, you know, the industry saying that the government, you know, needs to stay out of in the industry's way to innovate, that is wrong. You can have smart policies and smart regulations that help industry to innovate. And that's what we have seen all along since uh, EPA was formed in the 1970s. Well, and you made a great point when you were talking about the catalytic converter uh, in your book about what the catalytic converter did was just as important. What it did not do was just as important as what it did. You know, government regulators did not choose the technology. They did not choose the winners and losers and and mandate to the industry how to meet the standards. Instead, they set the standards knowing that they could be reached. Um, and then the industry found the technology on its own to meet the standards. And I'd like for you to kind of expand on that and talk about how you see that as an important point for future regulators to to embrace as we continue to move forward with innovation. Yeah. Well, we were very blessed, you know, with uh, the Clean Air Act. I wish I could take credit for that, but I can't. <laughs> but, 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 you know, Senator Muskie and the other authors of the Clean Air Act uh, were brilliant because they, they basically set a, a, a framework in my mind, that will, um, it's like the U.S. Constitution, it will survive because it's so so smart and it was so much ahead of their times. So basically the, the statute uh, tells the Environmental Protection Agency to set technology-forcing standards uh, and give industry time to meet those standards. Uh, so, so technology forcing, in my mind, it always has meant uh, let's figure out how much we can push the envelope so the industry can innovate, but at the same time make sure that we give them sufficient time to meet those requirements, and then let's evaluate the cost to the consumer, the cost to the society, uh, the cost to the, to, to the industry. 
And time after time, we, you know, when I was at, at the agency, we did that. We did that with cars. We told, in 1999, we told the car companies that they have to reduce their, their emissions by 95%, mm-hmm. uh, under President Clinton. We also told them that we would like to see the same uh, emission requirements for SUVs. We said, you know, uh, a, a light-duty truck is a sports utility vehicle. It's a passenger's vehicle. Right. It's not a working truck. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's make sure that you, that those trucks, you know, if a family of four or six or even two, they want to have an SUV. They should be able to have an SUV. But let's make sure that these SUVs are as clean as cars, you know, as your, your, your compact car or the mid-sized car. Right. But let's give time to the industry to, or to more time to get there. Mm-hmm. And also, what else does the industry need, the car companies need to, to do that? One issue that came to our, to our mind was the sulfur in gasoline poisons catalytic converters. So, if we, so we had to go and, and tell the oil industry, which was a, not a simple task, believe me. <laughs> it was much more challenging than telling the car companies to reduce emissions. I can emissions. imagine. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, say, hey, you know, oil industry, uh, first of all, s- sulfur in gasoline uh, creates indirect uh, em- emissions when you burn it in the car. But furthermore, by having these high levels of sulfur, we, we poison the catalyst, and the catalytic converter cannot do more. So right. we want you to take it down you know, from 300 parts per million down to 30 parts per million. Uh, and, you know, it's not going to cost you that much. It's going to cost the consumer, you know, one cent or two cents. Mm-hmm. And obviously the oil industry says, no, the sky's falling. You know, you're going to shut down <laughs> refineries. The consumer is not going to be able to afford it. And I'm just telling you, on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So, so, but we go ahead and we put this, this what I call uh, a systems approach, technology, you know, regulation. Tell the oil industry they have to do that. Tell the car companies they have to reduce it. We're not going to tell you how to do it. You have to figure it out. Right. Uh, and time after time, the industry has done that. We yeah. did it with diesel. I mean, one great example that I want to give you with the diesel. You know, diesel trucks and buses, uh, diesel locomotive engines, uh, pollute 10 times to 30 times more when it comes to particulate emissions, mm-hmm. which is probably uh, one of the most hazardous type of pollution in the environment because it creates very fine uh, particles, like one-seventh of a hair. Mm-hmm. It's just like one piece of your hair. It's, it's one-seventieth of your hair. It's that and the, tiny. And it goes into your lungs and creates lung cancer. It creates premature death, uh, respiratory illnesses. So, it, so diesel trucks and buses and cars, in the, until 2007, they could not have lower emissions because we could not put catalytic converters in those equipment unless we reduce sulfur almost to zero in diesel fuel. Ah, and so yeah, you have to work in conjunction so with the working, with the auto yeah. manufacturers and the yeah. oil industry and the you oil know, industry and the trackers. So now. Uh, you can get a diesel car or you can have a diesel truck or a diesel bus that has 99%, 99% less emissions. That's incredible. And, That's of course, amazing. 
you knew that was possible. Again, yeah. you know, and the book tells this in more detail because yeah. of the testing that you do at the lab and yeah. the really great collegial um, relationship that your scientists at the lab have with the automakers. I mean, exactly. you know, to, to look at cable news, you would think that it was all so yeah. acrimonious, but the truth is uh, the EPA works pretty well with the industry. And I think that's tremendous. That's a story that needs to be told. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Margot and her book, which I highly recommend. You can get it out on Amazon. It's called Driving the Future, Combating Climate Change with Cleaner, Smarter Cars. Don't go away. We'll be right back right after this. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success, no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to go green radio with your host jill buck jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show so call us toll free at 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 write to us too save some trees and send us an email to go green radio at gmail.com that's go green radio at gmail.com now back to go green radio with your host jill buck Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, our guest today is Margot Oge. She is the former director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality with the U.S. EPA. She's got a brand new book out called Driving the Future, Combating Climate Change with Cleaner, Smarter Cars. And you can get it out on Amazon. And Margot, I want to let you take a moment to tell our listeners um, how the proceeds of the book will be disseminated. I think that's important for our listeners to know. Uh, thank you, Jill. So I serve on a number of boards. Um, three of the boards I'm serving, one is the Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, the International Council for Clean Transportation, it's a global uh, nonprofit group, and the third one is the uh, Alliance for Climate Education that we're targeting uh, teenagers, high school kids, to educate them about climate change. Mm-hmm. So the author's proceedings will go to these uh, three wonderful uh, nonprofit groups. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you, Margo. You know, in the book, you identified four future trends that you believe will determine what and how we drive in the future. And I'd like to give you a chance to discuss these with us. Um, The first future trend that will have an impact, you say, on the transportation industry is the growth of urbanization and megacities. Talk to us about how that will impact transportation. So, Jill, in the next, by 2050, we're going to have 2 billion more people in the planet. And the growth of population is happening in major urban areas. Back in 1950s, we had only one megacity, which was New York City. Today, we have, I think, 26. In 10 years, are going to be 37. And these megacities uh, represent 70% of greenhouse gas emissions uh, wow. in the planet. And they are dealing not just with climate pollution, but they're dealing with air pollution, uh, congestion, which impacts economic growth in these cities. So they will, uh, and they already have a very big um, saying as what cars and how many cars will get into the major parts of the city. Uh, they tax cars based on their environmental, um, uh, you know, performance. Uh, some areas uh, like uh, like Singapore. Um, completely uh, discourage people of owning a car. They're making it even more expensive to get a permit to own a car than the the car itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Los Angeles, they're requiring a certain number of cars to be zero-emitting vehicles. So so the cities are going to have a lot of saying, and they already do, uh, of the type of car and how we're going to... you know, transport ourselves in, in, in a city. The mm-hmm. other driver, the big driver, is what I call the, cl- the global climate convergence of um, regulatory requirements across the planet for cars. Mm-hmm. Today, 75% of all new cars sold in the planet have some sort of requirement for lower carbon pollution or better fuel efficiency. By 2025, U.S. is not alone. Actually, Europe is ahead of us when it comes to carbon pollution regulations, and even China. But by 2025, all these um, uh, regulatory requirements will converge. So cars will become more and more of a global product. It's not going to be, well, we we have to have a clean car or electric car in the U.S., but something different is going to be required in in China or Japan or, or, or Europe, for example. And my view is that by 2050, in the planet as a whole, our cars should be zero uh, carbon pollution, mm-hmm. which sounds like a, a, an impossible task. Technologically, it can be done, but we need other uh, policies and factors to go in place. If we are to avoid the worst um, consequences of climate change, which is to keep... Um, the, the, the warming of the planet at 2 degrees Celsius, uh, you know, gr- increase. Uh, we need cars to be zero emissions. And mm-hmm. I think U.S., Europe, and um, Japan and, and China will work towards that. And finally, the most fascinating element for me, uh, which was new research that I did talking to various experts, is what I call the social trends that mm-hmm. will have a very big impact on how we commute uh, across the planet. Today, fewer and fewer of young people in the U.S. and Europe uh, are interested in either owning a car or having a driver's license. Mm -hmm. And we are all connected to the Internet, which has changed the way that we communicate with each other, the way we live, and the way that we work. 
And if you add to that uh, the, uh, what is going on at Silicon Valley with um, Google and the development of autonomous vehicle, mm-hmm. today they have what I call a robot. <laughs> it has <laughs> close to a million miles without any accident. But the idea of having um, a, a driverless car, not just Google, all the major companies, car companies are developing these vehicles, uh, will allow um, today's young people and future generations in urban environments to rely more and more on demand services like a driverless Uber mm-hmm. or, on, um, or, or a share service. Uh, there is a, a wonderful service in, in France. It's called blahblah.com. It's kind of funny, <laughs> but that's the name. Uh, that, uh, that you can get at any moment of your day, you can get to your iPhone, and you can get a seat in a car. Uh, and from 2 million, um, I think, uh, riderships in one year, they are to 20 million. And, the fi- and finally, we're going to have the opportunity to have, if we have a car on a car, to have a driverless car for the most part that will allow us to connect and integrate our everyday life to our car. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about it, uh, the way that telephones were back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the only service that they offer was to, to allow us to call somebody and get a call back. Mm-hmm. And then we got a message missing. The only thing that was doing was to just get a message. And, it, and, and even when we got cell phones, they were not offering us more services. But today our iPhone uh, is connecting every aspect of our lives, you know, from mm-hmm. our lungs to read a book. You know, you can download my book on your iPhone. You know, right. You can, That's right. You can shop. You can download a movie. You, you, uh, you don't, you know, you can figure out how you, you can have your GPS tell you the roads to avoid or not to, 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 to go through certain parts of the city. And the car, in my vision, will allow us to integrate uh, in the same way our, our lives, our energy system. You're already hearing from Tesla and from Honda, you know, along solar um, incorporations into houses with the ability to save that energy and mm-hmm. use it for your car or use it for your house. So that's the future. Uh, the future will be fewer cars, smarter cars, uh, zero carbon polluting vehicles. That is exciting. And for somebody who spent a good part of her life being a minivan mom, driving three kids around, <laughs> that sounds like a real dream. I mean, I, I, I look forward to uh, watching Moms of the Future enjoy those benefits. Um, I, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show, Margot. There's just so much more I'd love to go over with you, but um, I thank you for being on the show. I really want to encourage our listeners to get out there on Amazon and get Margot's book, Driving the Future, Combating climate change with cleaner smarter cars and remember that the uh, her proceeds anything she makes from the book is going to be going towards three fine and really effective uh, nonprofit organizations so um, you're doing a good deed and you're getting a lot of great information folks we'll be here same time same place next week with more go green radio i hope you have a great week and look for something in your life to go green this week do something maybe even get out on the epa's website uh, I love this one, epa.gov slash green vehicles. Check it out. Till next week, have a great week, everybody.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.